physicians are facing a barrage of patient questions about the COVID-19 vaccine based on extensive rumors, misinformation, and disinformation circulating among the American public. Everybody wants what's best for their children. Everybody wants what's best for their family, for their parents, their grandparents. And, you know, right now, everything we do is a balance of risks and benefits. You um, got in your car to come to the doctor today, although there was a chance that you might have had a wreck. <clears throat> because you felt that the benefit of going to the doctor was worth it. Um, th there's nothing that's completely risk-free. and um, But we feel very, very strongly that the risks of not vaccinating and getting COVID are much worse than the risks of theoretical risks of, of getting vaccinated. That was AMA President Dr. Susan Bailey. On this episode of Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association, AMA's Chief Health and Science Officer, Dr. Mira Irons, sits down with guest Dr. Bailey, AMA President-elect Dr. Gerald Harmon, Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Megan Srinivas, and Dr. Brian Castrucci, President and CEO of Beaumont Foundation, to answer questions about vaccine misinformation. I'm your host, Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer. This episode of Moving Medicine originally aired as part of the What Physicians Need to Know webinar series. Here's Dr. Irons. We've arrived at a critical moment in this pandemic where states are relaxing mask guidelines and restrictions around indoor gatherings based on new recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. COVID-19 case numbers and most importantly, COVID-related deaths continue to decline across the United States as more and more people become fully vaccinated. To date, half of adults in the United States are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and nearly two thirds of adults have received at least the first dose. So this is progress. And yet, while there is much hope and optimism that the worst days of the pandemic are behind us, we know that we still have a lot of work ahead of us to vaccinate enough of the population to conquer this virus. The latest research shows increased vaccine acceptance among most demographics, including in the Black and Latinx communities, which have been disproportionately impacted in this pandemic. But obstacles still remain, as vaccine supply now is far outpacing demand in some states. Whether they're objecting for medical, political, religious, or other personal reasons, roughly one quarter of U.S. adults remain outright opposed to receiving the vaccine. And so as physicians, we have more work to do to reach all communities with a clear and consistent message that the vaccines for COVID-19 are safe, they are effective, and that they have followed the same rigorous scientific process that every vaccine does before it reaches the public. To do this well, we need to be part counselor, part research scientist, and part myth buster, but always a trusted physician. In recent years, we have seen how misinformation and disinformation is shaping the way physicians provide care. From the questions we get from our patients to the care and treatments that patients request or decline. So I'm gonna start by asking Dr. Bailey the first question, and it's a timely one, given that um, we are uh, beginning to vaccinate adolescents. Why are we vaccinating children with vaccines that are untested and they have a low risk of severe illness from COVID-19? Well, thanks for that question, Mira. It's one that I'm getting fairly often. Um, there is a general feeling that 
children don't get COVID, uh, they get mild disease, they don't die from it. But the fact of the matter is, is that children are not immune from COVID. Uh, there have been um, thousands of cases reported, hundreds of deaths. And we know that children, of course, can be asymptomatic carriers. Um, and then if they do get COVID, can have long haul symptoms, plus the, that very frightening multi-system multi inflammatory syndrome in children uh, that resembles Kawasaki's disease. We, need to immunize children because they comprise a significant percentage of our population if we're going to reach herd immunity. Um, there are, in, I you know, disagree with the premise that, that it has been untested because the, there have been um, a million um, 16 to 17 year olds have already received the Pfizer vaccine. Um, there were thousands that were in the Pfizer trial, thousands more that are in the Moderna trial in the 12 to 15 year old age group. Uh, and there's really no reason to think that the vaccines are going to affect them any differently than they are an older adolescent or a young adult. So I think it's critical to um, help get everybody back to normal again, get kids back in school, uh, get um, our activities back to where we want them to be, is that it's important to, to vaccinate adolescents and ho I hope soon younger children. Great, what a wonderful answer. Any additional comments or thoughts on that question? You know, Dr. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Harmon. Uh, thanks. You know, one of the things that caught my attention when in preparing for this discussion today is the uh, evidence now that one out of four patients with COVID right now, 24, 25% are children. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's uh, there's a transmissibility and a preponderance now uh, that that's taking hold in the pediatric population. So I think if we can immunize them as soon as we can, it'll protect them for all the reasons you just heard from Dr. Bailey. Absolutely. Great. And just talking about the transmissibility that Dr. Harmon discussed and Dr. Bailey was alluding to, it's not just about the child getting severely ill, it's about them also bringing it home to their parents, their caregivers, their grandparents. And the best way to keep that transmission low to protect the actual family is to also ensure that your children aren't gonna become carriers that could introduce it to your family. Um, all right, Dr. Herman, how much did the pause in administering the Johnson & Johnson vaccine hurt public confidence in the vaccine? Dr. Irons, I think what that uh, pause illustrated was that we are very closely monitoring the, re the results from our vaccination program. We started out with an emergency use authorization with 50,000, 30,000, 40,000 clinical trial uh, in phase three. And now we have, as you heard from Dr. Bailey and others, millions of Americans having received these vaccines. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine paused for two weeks. For, for two weeks was actually a validation that we're being incredibly safe. That means the DEA, VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System that we as physicians are very familiar with, works. We were monitoring what's going on. We found a slight uptick and a very unusual central venous sinus thrombosis that was a a little more evident in the vaccinated individual. We, we drilled down to this science and showed that it affected women aged 18 to, to 44. And, and so we've identified what's going on. We've been able to actually validate, I think not only this, the safety of the vaccine itself, but the monitoring of that. So I found it to be very minimally impactful in my patient population. And I, I know that that's a, a, an approach that some of our vaccine resistant patients may bring to their individual physician, but I would 
reflect then to that, to that patient in my question, this system works. And if we have done millions now, we've seen no other problems with it. I think it's a reasonable uh, consideration. Furthermore, that Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a single dose vaccine. So it's a one and done. It really helps validate that we're giving a safe vaccine. Yeah, I think for patients, it's really easy to say you are twice as likely to get hit by lightning than you are to get a blood clot from the COVID-19 uh, vaccines. So, you know, putting it in in language that patients can relate to is is important and will help you get your message across and then sets up a conversation for additional questions that they may have. And I also think it helps to remind patients that uh, if you get COVID, uh, you are very likely to have some type of clotting event uh, because COVID does affect blood vessels and uh, up to 20, 25% of patients with COVID uh, that are hospitalized do have some sort of clotting event. So your chances of getting a blood clot are much, much less if you get the J&J &J vaccine. Also sharing the numbers has been very effective for my patients because the Johnson Johnson one was positive, only really been out there for about a month. And so people don't realize that almost 8 million people had gotten the vaccine. So the number of cases that were found were so small. And so just reminding people of the number of safe doses that were given helps to, to show just how safe this vaccine really is. Wonderful. Moving on, um, Dr. Castrucci, um, what does your research tell us about vaccine hesitancy? Where's the hesitancy coming from and how can we as physicians help build confidence? So the politicization of this public health crisis has been challenging from day one. And the hesitancy really right now does break along party line. We are announcing, you know, we, we've announced in the last couple of days, 50% of the American people have been vaccinated. However, there are nine states where it's less than 40%. Herd immunity is often discussed when we should be discussing community immunity, because just because the nation gets to 80 or even 90 percent doesn't mean that that's what that is in your community. And so what we've learned about hesitancy is what people want are facts and they want facts from apolitical sources and people they trust. So it, it most assuredly is it's physicians, pharmacists and other healthcare workers, it's pastors and other faith leaders, it's parents, its peers, all of those folks have an amazing responsibility to be trusted one-on-one -on -one messengers. And what I would encourage every physician listening to do, make it a vital sign. We, you know, there, there was a time when it, when smoking wasn't a vital sign. We made it a vital sign. We put the five A's in so that you could do a brief intervention. Every patient, every visit, every, every physician, I don't, care what your specialty is. Did you get vaccinated for COVID? If yes, you're good. If not yet, but I want to, make sure they have information about where they can get it. And lastly, if they say no, give them the facts. We didn't cut corners, we cut red tape to get it to the American people. Tens of thousands of people have, have received this vaccine and it will help you get back to what you want to be doing. It's the path back to normalcy. Great. Um, Dr. Srinivas, um, you know, this was a great segue. How is the research and production timeline for the COVID-19 vaccines now in wide circulation different from that of a typical vaccine? And what's the simplest way for physicians to explain this process so that patients understand? So there are a lot of, there's a lot of confusion surrounding this timeline. 
one of the big things that people don't realize and that patients often wonder about is the mRNA technology. How did it happen so quickly? It didn't. We've known that it's actually been in development for more than two decades. The, the Pentagon really has been a huge force in promoting this over the last couple of decades and doing the behind the scenes research along with academics. And so this is not new technology. We've used it when we've been developing flu vaccines, even in the development of the Zika vaccine that was in the works. So we know how it works. So when the pandemic hit, we already were hitting the ground running with this technology we've been working on for so long. And that is one thing that we really need to really connect with our patients on to reassure them that we know how this technology works because we've been working with it for so long. The other big issue too when it comes to this process is the concern about the approval process and how it works. Why was this so much faster than the typical approval process? The real reason is because we did a lot of things in conjunction, overlapping, that normally happen in a more linear timeline. So as the private industry was really working on the development of the vaccine. We had our administrative side, the FDA, the CDC, really overlapping with the review of the data at the same time, speeding up that process and working in more of a partnership than we have in the past. When I talk to patients, one way I explain this is I talk about ordering a pizza from Domino's. When I order two pizzas, it takes longer if they make the first pizza and then go to make the second pizza. But when they overlap that process and are able to make them simultaneously, either because they have another worker with them or they're able to do both at the same time, my pizzas are both done in 10 minutes instead of waiting 20 minutes. And that's what the FDA, the CDC and private industries did. They worked together to make their pizzas or the vaccines much more quickly. That's great. Um, Dr. Bailey, Dr. Herman, any other thoughts about how you've handled this question from your patients? Well, I also will tell patients um, that, you know, one reason that we were able to get things done so quickly is that we had so many wonderful people working on it and lots and lots of money from Operation Warp Speed. Uh, I read an analogy yesterday that I thought was great. It's like building a house. If you have um, only a few workers, it's going to take and not much money it's going to take you a really long time to get that house built. But if money is no object and you have 200 people building your house, it's going to happen really, really quickly. So if I can add, I think the, the message testing and just for the audience, I'm not a physician. I'm a public health doctor. And what we work on is messaging around the vaccine. And so you know, bureaucracy, we cut bureaucracy, we cut red tape, that plays well with the general population. And taking um, some of that language to say, the FDA has been there at every trial, every study, every step along the way and hit that every. The other thing that I think is super important for everyone on this, this call, I took it. As soon as it was available to me, I took it. And if people know that, that physicians are taking it, healthcare professionals that we trust with our most intimate information, uh, that will help and, and it will make a, a great deal of, of difference in people's decision making. Great, wonderful. Um, all right, Dr. Bailey, back to you. Um, what could you say to a patient who says the vaccine could impact your fertility or make your menstrual cycles irregular? Um, this, these myths have been making the rounds and 
we think where the fertility issue came up was that some researchers realized that the spike protein on the uh, COVID, on the SARS-CoV-2 virus was somewhat similar in, uh, in structure to the Syncytin-1 cell that uh, helps the placenta attach to the uterus. And so the theory being that the vaccine would attack that cell and you would have a pregnancy loss. But the good news is, is that there really is not any homology between those two proteins. Um, and it, the, it doesn't recognize that the confirmation is different, the size is different. Um, so, so that myth has has fortunately been disproven. There were a number of women in the Pfizer trial who actually got pregnant during the trial. And uh, to me, that's a pretty good testimony that it doesn't affect fertility. And um, there was out of, I think, 30 births, um, there was only one pregnancy loss, and that was in a woman that was in the placebo group. Um, so the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists now is recommending that pregnant women get the vaccine. We know that pregnant women have more trouble with COVID and can have more severe disease. Uh, and as far as the menstrual cycle irregularities, this is something, uh, another, I think, um, reason that the CDC should get so much credit for taking every comment and every side effect seriously and um, as a sign that this reporting system really does work. Uh, there have been some menstrual irregularities reported, but it's not clear that these are any more frequent than they would be in the unvaccinated population. Menstrual irregularities in adolescents and young women, heck, and women of, of menstruating women of all ages are very common uh, and can come and go, especially with the stress of the pandemic. So um, we, we don't think that there's any correlation, but we're following it very carefully. Great, wonderful. Any other comments? <clears throat> And touching on that, we've actually had even more studies that have come out, just one on May 13th in JAMA and another um, just two weeks prior to that uh, that was written by a bunch of ACOG researchers that actually specifically looked at pregnant women and women in fertility age and found that this is much safer. One thing that I always remind my patients is that taking the vaccine is actually the number one way to protect their babies because COVID can cause miscarriage. It can cause stillbirth. It can cause preterm delivery. And it's much safer to be vaccinated and prevent that additional increased risk for those things. Great, great. All right, Dr. Harmon, um, what could you say to someone who has severe food or seasonal allergies and they are concerned about getting the vaccine? Very good question. Our studies have shown that the pre-existing severe food or, or uh, seasonal allergies is not a contraindication to getting this vaccine. I would even argue that those folks are more likely to have allergies and allergic type symptoms might, if they were to get the virus, become more ill, as it were, because of their uh, preponderance to already having a, an altered immune system. And so they could become ill and even worse. They might confuse early signs of the disease, congestion, headache, uh, malaise, cough, even a little shortness of breath with their seasonal allergies and meanwhile get a little bit sicker before they could avail themselves of 
some early treatments that we know are now beginning to work as the science and experience has, has been gained with treating the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So I, I would not contraindicate that. On rare occasion, if you're concerned about having a, a hyperallergic response, or maybe in the past you've had to use an EpiPen or something for a hypersensitivity or a, a serious allergic reaction, talk to your doctor, talk to your allergist, talk to someone that knows your medical history and get clearance and advice from them. I will tell you that all of our vaccination centers have prepared on hand EpiPens, the standard EpiPen, the adrenaline that we would use to treat hypersensitivity reactions, and they have uh, uh, the ability to transport and, and provide uh, medical transport. We do it in our local uh, vaccination sites. All of us do that for all three of the vaccines, the Moderna, the Pfizer, and the Johnson & Johnson product. Um, the only contraindication contra is if you've had an anaphylactic react reaction to that vaccine before, <clears throat> or have known allergies to polyethylene glycol, which we think is what's triggering uh, the uh, anaphylaxis in uh, the mRNA vaccines. Um, so I recommend to my patients, um, listen, tell the vaccine provider about all your allergies. They'll watch you longer. Um, they'll have a 30 minute waiting period instead of just a 15 minute waiting period. Uh, bring your EpiPen with you. Um, you know what it feels like to have a reaction. So at the first sign of something happening, let somebody know so that reaction can be treated. Um, and then also reassuring them that kind of like the, you know, you're about as likely to be struck by lightning as you are to have an allergic reaction to the vaccine. So that's, I think that's really good news. And I'd like to add one thing to my allergy uh, specialist colleague, Dr. Bailey. One of the things as a primary care physician I've learned as I've become more educated, remembering our audience of healthcare providers and physicians here, I've learned that something's a little antithetical to what I might've been taught before. If you have a person who is bothered by allergies, in the past, I've thought about giving them a pretreatment with an antihistamine. Say, hey, you know, if you think you might have an allergic reaction, why don't you take a, a Benadryl or a diphenhydramine ahead of time? Actually, that's not good advice. And I would tell you that what that may do is mask the symptoms of anaphylaxis, the early warning signs, the itching, the rash, and then you could be in overt anaphylaxis without realizing it. So you want to be careful what you advise your, your potentially high-risk patients that have hyperallergic anaphylaxis in their history. Something as a primary care specialist, I didn't realize until I became more educated and experienced in the uh, COVID pandemic vaccine response. Thank you. Great. Um, what could you say to someone who says, if the first vaccine shot is 80% effective, why do I need that second shot? So with the shots, as we've actually seen, that first shot has varying efficacy. But the thing we also have to keep in mind is it's going to change based on which variant somebody comes in contact with. With the initial variants that we tested against here in the United States, we saw that initial shot had up to 56% efficacy really one to two weeks out. Still not perfect. And really that second shot is what adds that more robust response. And with the most recent variants that we've been seeing, like B1167, that was the one that emerged in India, we've seen that that first shot, if it has lower efficacy of only about 30% initially, but then getting that second shot really boosts up your efficacy significantly. The studies coming out of Denmark, out of Israel, it all supports this. That first shot is not as effective as having both shots. And the way I, I try to reflect this to my patients is I tell them that I'm making brownies. And the first part of the brownie recipe is mixing all of the dry ingredients together. But I'm not going to get brownies 
that that ooey gooey great fudgy brownie unless I also bring in the second part of the recipe, which is the the liquids and the baking that's when you really get the goodness that's when I get that 100% delight. And that's what happens with the vaccine, you need that second shot to increase efficacy, but also the duration of which the vaccine will protect you and more and more data coming out supports that. Great. Any other comments on that? You guys are making me hungry here for the brownies and the pizza now. I think in the time zone, it may be after lunch and it may be pre-lunch. Maybe I'm just thinking too much about food all the time when I see the patients. <laughs> all right, Dr. Castrucci, um, how important is the physician voice in this equation? How much does a recommendation from a physician matter? Um, in, in the work, you know, what are you what are you finding in your focus groups and your research? So our research, as well as research from Kaiser Family Foundation and others, have shown that the physician voice, nurse voices, healthcare providers, pharmacists are all critically important. Uh, this is really about mobilizing our ground game, and we need folks in their offices, you know, talking to people one on one. And I think. Um, you know, some of the analogies we've heard are really, really good. You've got to remember, messaging needs to be simple, relatable, and repeatable. So you don't get, you know, you don't get points for different messages with each patient. Get a good script together, you know, know what you want to say. We have um, a toolkit available for physicians at changingthecovidconversation.org, where all of our messaging is. But know the facts, give folks the facts, and stay away from the complex messaging that is in medicine, but we need to find a way to make it super simple. Brownies, um, pizza. Um, another analogy that, that we've heard is um, when you wear your seatbelt in a car, it's not because you know you're going to get into an accident. You do it to make sure that if you get into an accident, you're protected. This vaccine is the same thing. If you were to get COVID, it keeps you safe. Great. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Um, back to Dr. Bailey. Um, what do you say to a patient who says that they're concerned about the long-term health effects of the COVID-19 vaccine and wants to wait to see what happens before they get it. Boy, I hear that one a lot. Um, I have patients, well, I just think I'm gonna wait and see, you know, and I resist the urge to ask them, well, what are you waiting for since we've had hundreds of millions of, of people vaccinated? But there is, we have never had a vaccine of any kind ever that has caused long-term side effects um, all side effects pop up between uh, really in the first two months. 
And there's just really no mechanism that makes sense that would all of a sudden cause something to happen years later. Uh, we know folks are concerned about um, you know, safety. And when a parent brings that up to me, you know, I say, listen, everybody wants what's best for their children. Everybody wants what's best for their family, for their parents, their grandparents. And, you know, right now, everything we do is a balance of risks and benefits. You um, got in your car to come to the doctor today, although there was a chance that you might have had a wreck because you felt that the benefit of going to the doctor was worth it. Um, th there's nothing that's completely risk-free. And, um, but we feel very, very strongly that the risks of not vaccinating and getting COVID are much worse than the risks of theoretical risks of, of getting vaccinated. So, you know, you gotta, gotta present it to patients in that way and say, yes, we, yes, this was a um, authorized after just two months of observation, but we've never seen vaccine side effects occur after that. So I feel very confident. We're continuing to look at folks, um, but um, I try to reassure patients that, um, they're going to be okay long-term. Mira, I would comment that to Dr. Bailey's point, I know the question and the resistance from some folks has been, they're uncertain about the long-term effects of the vaccine. I think we need to remember uh, that the long-term effects of this COVID, vaccine, COVID virus are, are, are known. They're starting to become known. We're, we have a, over a year of experience now, 18 months of experience, and we know that there is a long hauler syndrome. We know that there is an uh, arterial vascular component. Not only does this virus affect the, the linings of your lungs, and again, we're speaking to healthcare professionals, it's an arteritis type inflammation. You get cardiovascular problems, you get myocarditis, you get a decreased ejection fraction, you get hypercoagulability, you get all these bad things that we know. And, and we actually see the data that the more seriously ill patients have a longer recovery. You know, the two thirds of the people, 60% I'm looking at, and we've seen this reports in the literature, 60% of those 60 and over have substantial symptoms 60 or more days into the, the virus recovery. And it and you can have long-term cognitive effects. It affects your ability to mentate. You have uh, serious um, neuro, neurologic uh, long-term events. I, that's such an important risk that you can mitigate or prevent by becoming vaccinated. Again, not to try to uh, patronize our patients as physicians, but try to explain them the risk benefit. The seatbelt analogy is an excellent one. You don't plan on getting in an event. Occasionally, the seatbelt on very rare occasion could trap you in your vehicle, but overwhelmingly, it's there for safety in case bad things happen. This is an insurance policy that's well worth the investment. Thanks. Dr. Herman, you touch on a really important point. And one thing I, I try to, on that point, reflect to my patients too, is it's not just the severe or moderately ill that can have those long-term side effects. It's actually a really good paper came out in JAMA last month that showed in the mild cases even, people who really don't have their life affected that much, we've seen a 50% increase in all-cause mortality in the six months after illness. And that's for the people who don't even really get that sick. So we know there's long-term consequences of the disease and we can prevent that with the vaccine. Great. So Dr. Herman, back to you for this one. What could you say to a patient who fears the COVID-19 vaccines are experimental gene therapy that changes your DNA? I'm glad my audience is physicians here because it's a bit challenging 
uh, to explain messenger RNA and DNA to even the, the bright patient because it's just not in their common vocabulary, their lexicon. They, they see, hear, read about the human genome and things. And it's, an, it's, it's something you read about in Scientific American and National Geographic. It's rarely something you think about when you get up in the morning. How's my DNA going today? You know, it's, it's unusual. But you, what you've ta uh, touched upon is something I, as a, a family medicine specialist, have to be able to then to convey to my patient. And, and I'm thinking through the science of it. These two messenger RNA vaccines and even the adenovirus vector vaccine, the former being Pfizer and Moderna and the later one J&J, &J, they go into the cytoplasm of the cell. Remember the genome and the genes and the DNA is in the nucleus. And if you think about it as a scientist, as healthcare professionals, they, these vaccines enter the cytoplasm, which you know, ordinarily there, as I read the science, uh, uh, there's 200,000 bits of messenger RNA working on our cells at any given time, telling it to make proteins, to make enzymes. That's what cy cytoplasm of cells do. You know, they don't just serve themselves, they serve the entire body. So this messenger RNA or the adenovirus vector RNA tells our cytoplasm, hey, get busy making a spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and put it out into the outside the cell. And then that, that's pretty much cleared by that cell within a couple of days at most, and it's all gone. It never touches your DNA or genome. And if you can think, and I try to tell my patients that it won't touch your DNA, it has nothing to do with your DNA. It tells your cells that are outside your DNA what to do so your DNA doesn't get harmed. I have found in this situation that sometimes uh, visual aids work. You know, I'll, um, you know, draw a big circle, a picture of a cell with a nucleus in it, and you know, do some, you know, scribbling for the chromosomes. Okay, here's where your chromosomes are. Um, this is where the mRNA goes. The mRNA can't get in here. That doesn't happen. Um, and, and sometimes that can make an impact on, on someone that, you know, that these abstract terms don't mean very much. Megan, you've got great analogies. Do you have a good analogy for this one? <laughs> I think I'm going to really owe Dr. Harmon a plate of brownies after this analogy. <laughs> but with this one, I tell people that the mRNA is like a recipe. If I want to make my grandmother's brownies, I get her recipe and I try to make it exactly like that. So that way I can feed the crowd and your body's doing that. It's getting the recipe on how to prepare to make the brownies that will protect you from COVID when, when the time comes. You know, let's also, I think everyone on the call needs to be very cognizant that some of this misinformation is coming from folks wearing white coats. That everyone on this call may be well-intentioned and want to have people vaccinated, but that is not universally shared by every provider. And so I would encourage you to, to be cognizant of what the misinformation is and where it's coming from so you can, you know, more actively hit on those points that those who are spreading misinformation are propagating. And actually what Dr. Castrucci is saying um, times well with uh, a misinformation think tank or published a paper just this week that discussed how people are being paid, influencers are being paid to intentionally spread misinformation. One influencer in France, he's one of the biggest influencers in the French culture. He has 1.2 million social media followers, and he came out and even shared um, 
how a consulting company had approached him to specifically tank sales of Pfizer by spreading misinformation that they knew was wrong. And he's not the only social media influencer there they're reaching out to. They're reaching out to anybody with followers, both in the medical field and outside, but especially those in the medical field who we might think of as allies, they're reaching out to them because people trust doctors, they trust nurses. And these are the people that they can really get to propagate this misinformation. And this is probably one of our biggest challenges beyond the, you know, the physical of it is social media is a challenge for us going forward. And this is medicine and public health. Right. I mean, I never thought in my public health career I would be debating whether something existed, right? Not how to treat it, not what we should do from a public health standpoint, just the basic, I heard it was a hoax. And so this is going to require a change in all of our training going forward. How do we deal with misinformation? And at what point is misinformation tantamount to yelling fire in a crowded theater? So we have some heavy First Amendment issues to kind of think through. But people have died because people have spread misinformation. And one of the ways we as physicians could really combat that is take what we look at as sometimes the enemy, social, social media, but use it as a tool. So throughout the pandemic, I found it extremely effective to directly reach out to patients, to my colleagues, by just sharing daily quick facts that are true and sourcing them to where they can find more information so people can dig in and make sure that I'm not spreading this information. And as physicians, just having that connection with our community members, it increases the chance that they're going to listen to what you post on social media. So don't let social media just be that foreign object that other people can take advantage of. Be somebody on there that can try to purvey some of that correct information, because whether we like it or not, it's a place that people look to Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Facebook. It's a place that people look to for information. So we might as well be a part of the solution on it. And a plug for the AMA here, um, the AMA senior management um, has been working from the beginning of the pandemic with um, the large social media um, outlets to asking them not to um, publish misinformation. And, um, and so that has been a concern of the AMAs really from, from the very beginning. I'll tell you, I was precepting this morning with resident physicians and they brought this same topic up to me when I was talking to them about vaccine hesitancy and other leadership uh, roles for community physicians and, and influencers of which all of us doctors are and the resident physicians will be when they finish their residency. And they did have some distress to me and they voiced it about the preponderance of social media disinformation and how they almost daily, especially in the younger generation of patients, have to deal with a social, mis social media disinformation campaign. It is an uphill battle, but it's one we're actively engaged in. It's one we as health professionals need to be that trusted source. And again, probably one of the best uh, counterpoints is to take it point by point, to talk to your patients, your, your hesitant patients, and talk to them as a trusted source of information, uh, someone with whom they've trusted their lives and their families' lives for, for extended periods of times, in my case, for generations. But take advantage of your relationship with your patients. Thanks. Dr. Kestrich, do you have any specific strategies in terms of how to how to address the in, misinformation that people um, that people are hearing and that they're reading and that their friends are talking to them about? Are there specific strategies of words to use or not to use that's important that are important? Yeah, I think um, this is tough because for us, 
we have a very narrow lane of facts. Those spreading misinformation have a whole kind of football field of stuff. You know, we, zombie apocalypse, you know, you're gonna have the, these types of new cancers. I think one of the most disturbing things I had seen on social media was a, it was someone watching TV and on the TV it said, you know, have you ever had the COVID-19 vaccine? Call 1-800 and it was that suggestion that, you know, like mesothelioma or all, some of the other things we see on TV and, you know, call now and you can get this big settlement. That's, these, these are really challenging, but as much as I'm a bulldog, right? So when, when someone trolls me on Twitter, I wanna go at them, right? I wanna start talking about it and, you know, taking it, about, you know, take it apart piece by piece. And most of the misinformation people that I've talked to, it's, it's like, that doesn't help. It brings misinformation forward. So if, if you go to um, a website called publichealthcollaborative.org, it is the home of the Public Health Communications Collaborative. We actually have a misinformation alert on that website. And not only does it tell you what the misinformation is, it tells you what you should do to address it. And despite my kind of bulldog mentality, most of the time it says, just don't talk about it. Don't buy into it. Pivot back to the facts. Pivot back to what we know. Help people understand. I think many of you have mentioned this kind of calculus between the theoretical impact of the vaccine to the documented and real possibilities of the virus. And I think we, in our communications, have not done enough to really help the American public have some concern about the virus. So I think we have to do a better job of helping people understand the potential devastation of COVID because the seatbelt analogy is kind of built on the fact that we've all seen horrific accidents. And so it's a little easier to click that seatbelt because we've seen it and we fear it. And so I know fear is not the best communication strategy, but an absence of fear, when you have fear being generated on the other side, I think is something we have to think about a little more. And touching on what you're saying, Dr. Castrucci, um, even looking at the political world and rhetoric, they found that the candidates who don't repeat what their opponent says, but instead just build that positive lining themselves are far more effective in their rhetoric. Whereas if you repeat, that's what gets stuck in people's minds. And the same on social media, by not engaging with somebody who's spreading misinformation, you're not enabling that conversation to be seen by other people. But by engaging, it actually in increases the likelihood that somebody will see that by about four to five times every single time somebody engages. So that's why it's so important to just be positive message forward and not to really address the trolls or the misinformation that's out there. All right, Dr. Srinivas, what do you say to a patient who says that if the vaccine for COVID-19 were safe, it would have already received FDA approval? So the thing that we've discussed multiple times throughout this is how the FDA and the CDC has really overlapped their entire time with the development of this vaccine. And so there's really not any nook or cranny that is obscured by the FDA or the CDC. And so we know that there has been clear transparency from the beginning. The fact that we had the Johnson & Johnson pause so quickly shows that there's a lot of transparency. But when it comes to full approval process, not just an emergency use approval, it requires a lot of administrative work, a lot of paperwork, a lot of that bureaucracy, and it takes time to do that. And so the fact that we went to the EUA was to really cut out 
that paperwork process, even though that we know the vaccine is safe. And that paperwork process is happening in the background. I tell people, for once, not a food analogy, Dr. Herman, <laughs> I tell people to think about when they go to get their car registration. I have to renew that every single year. It's the exact same thing. I pay the money, it goes through like this, but it still takes me a month for me to get that registration sticker in the mail to put on my car. And that's because of the bureaucracy, the paperwork in the background. And that's what's going on with the approval. Both Pfizer and Moderna are in the midst of that process. We anticipate that they will likely have full approval in just a few months, but it's really because of the paperwork that's just been taking a while to get it caught up to where the science is. And I think it's important to emphasize, um, you know, of course, you don't want to get down too down in the weeds about this because it can get really wonky. But um, the, the EUA process that was um, adopted last summer uh, for vaccines is actually not that much different than the uh, licensing process. Um, it, it's just, you know, missing the bureaucracy. And, you know, AMA has been on top of this, you know, from day one. And, you know, no corners were cut, you know, um, it, it was just a, a incredibly rigorous uh, trial process. And, and the approval versus authorization in many ways is just, just semantics. However, just be mindful of those because I, when that changes, it will create an opportunity for those who had been concerned. So our data have shown that the, just the, you know, the emergency, the idea of it's experimental, it does contribute to some concern. And so if you've had patients that you've talked to who are concerned and haven't got vaccinated, when we start seeing these go from EUA to full authorization, it's an opportunity to re-engage with those patients to say, hey, now it's full authorization. How are you feeling about that today, right? Now you said it was an experimental issue, now it's not. So what do we think? How can we get you vaccinated today, right? That, that's an opportunity that we have moving forward as with school openings. Many of you are in communities where we're having this conversation. Are we gonna open schools, masked or unmasked, vaxxed or unvaxxed? And what we've seen in our data is that a return to school, uh, return to school unmasked and not distanced, if you're vaccinated, is a major drive to get parents to choose to make that decision, right? The idea of getting back to a normal school is a real carrot. And the more that states are taking that option away, um, it just takes a tool out of our toolkit. But uh, if you're talking to local school boards, if you're engaged with your local school districts, you know, encourage them to, to put out that carrot and, and stick, and it could be effective. What I'm going to do is just go around to everybody and ask whether there are any questions that you're getting commonly that we haven't brought up today, any final thoughts, um, and sort of things that you have found a best practice, so to speak, that's been really effective in addressing these questions. Let's start with Dr. Bailey. Thanks. Um, you know, I have found, and there's recommendation, I know Dr. Castrucci's foundation has emphasized this, and others that have done research into um, how to talk about vaccines with your patients, is to, to encourage questions 
to make sure the patient understands that it's natural to have questions about something new, uh, that their questions are welcome, and to be very empathetic um, when handling um, their, uh, their concerns. I had a patient that was just like, nope, not gonna do it. And I was like, okay, would you mind telling me why I'd really like to know, you know, what your thinking is? And I had a long-term relationship with this patient. So, uh, and it turned out that, you know, she had some uh, legitimate concerns and some concerns that were, you know, totally out in left field, you know, and although I'm not sure she, I changed her mind, uh, I asked her, I said, at least keep thinking about it, keep, you know, looking at it, you know, keep studying, keep, you know, listening. And if you have any questions, please, please, please let us know. Great. Dr. Srinivas, why don't we go to you next? So really similar to what Dr. Bailey was saying, trying to talk to patients from a way that doesn't judge them, but really reflects what you've done and the information that's out there. So many times I'll use my own personal example. When people ask me about fertility, I tell them, hey, I plan to have children and I got the vaccine. That has changed quite a few people's minds as, oh, okay, she did it herself. Or same about one of my best friends is pregnant and I encouraged her to get the vaccine and drove her to the, the appointment and she's doing great as is her baby now that she is delivered. One other thing that I do wanna highlight is that language really matters. So there's a lot of conversations out there about how to address the crowd that has vaccine hesitancy. One of the biggest things that we've seen is don't call people anti-vaxxers because it puts that label in your mind as it's a confrontational relationship instead of a relationship where we can discuss concerns and get to hopefully a similar point because we have similar values to build upon. It also creates that confrontational aspect in other people's minds instead of making it a team aspect. So we've seen that one of the biggest ways to combat vaccine hesitancy is to change the language around which we address it. Great. Dr. Castrucci? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna see you don't use anti-vaxxer and raise you don't even call them vaccine hesitant. You know we've tried to use vaccine concerned, and I I you know what we were all saying here. Don't blame and shame. Make sure we keep these conversations about health. There's a very fine line with COVID between having a health conversation and having a political conversation. And the second that people think you are trying to persuade or manipulate, now it's a conversation about liberty, freedom, and government overreach. So we want to stay fact-based. You want to let people know this is their decision. And I agree with, with both of the, the folks who've said, you know, it's about giving them safe spaces to ask questions because there really aren't a lot of safe places to ask questions about COVID without getting immediate backlash. And, and that's, that's really unfair because I'm glad that you are comfortable with this vaccine, but I'm just not yet. And that's okay. Normalizing concern instead of, and again, I think the blaming the shaming evolved out of the politicization of the virus and the vaccine. And we have to do everything we can to depoliticize the conversation. If you politicize a public health crisis, you delay the end of it. And Dr. Harmon, I'm going to let you have the last word. What I want to do is, is address my uh, personal uh, experiences and successes I've had with the vaccine um, 
uh, resistant or, or uh, vaccine uh, questioners, as it were. Doctor, uh, you heard Dr. Kostrusi say, first, don't give credibility. And you heard Dr. Srinivas say, don't repeat the negativism. Don't go on social media attacking the misinformation. Not let them uh, die for lack of a second, as it were. And don't give, don't, uh, give them more credibility in, in media space, as it were. That's a good thing. Talk to your patients as individuals. One of the things I've found to be effective in my community, and all, my state, South Carolina, is not at the 50 percentile. We're still in the 40s about total immunity. So we're working at it. But I heard the term today from Dr. Kostrusi, community immunity. And I use that in my local community. We're 75% vaccinated, which is pretty good. We're among the leaders in our state. I think it's because of our positive efforts. We have had community-based vaccine centers. We have been out in the rural areas in communities of color, which ordinarily have a little bit higher resistance to the vaccinations of all types, and even sometimes confidence in the healthcare system. So we get the influences of that in those communities to, to host, I've had it in churches, I've had it at community centers and rural health centers that ordinarily are difficult to, to get to. And we've been out there vaccinating. And then when we're out there, we thank people for coming. We encourage them that this is, we're, we appreciate them getting the vaccine and being confident in what my recommendation is and taking care of their community with immunity. That's a great perspective. And now as we've opened it up to the 12 to 15 year old age group, as opposed to just the 16 and up or 18 and up, depending on the vaccine available, now we're going out to the school events. We're going out to the school nurses. I've got the school administrators. I had all the school nurses vaccinated. They were first in line. Now they're helping vaccinate the students at pre-participation sports exams. You don't require the vaccine when you give a pre-participation sport exam, but you make it available. You got a little corner with the vaccine over in the corner. While they're there getting their vaccine, I mean, getting their pre-participation check. Hey, by the way, your parents there anyway to give you permission or your guardian to get permission to get your exam. Well, how about getting the vaccine while you're there? Reach out into those communities and at sporting events. We've actually been there. It's you got to take advantage of, of targets of opportunity, as it were, using my military background. And it's been very effective at getting that done. This is a wonderful opportunity to be, again, using the sports now on offense against this virus, this nasty virus. Let's take an offensive position and not just wait until it waxes. Thanks. Thank you again to Drs. Bailey, Harmon, Srinivas, and Castrucci for their for your time and effort and your incredible insights. Be well, everyone. That was Dr. Mira Irons, AMA's Chief Health and Science Officer, AMA President Dr. Susan Bailey, AMA President-elect Dr. Gerald Harmon, Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Megan Srinivas, and Dr. Brian Castrucci, President and CEO of Beaumont Foundation. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.